City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching a message from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 18, and the message is called, Pray Then Like This. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Amen. All right, join me in prayer, church family. Lord, teach us your word today. Father, thank you for your spirit that has revealed to us salvation through your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, for opening our eyes to who you are and the continued revelation of your truth through your revealed and final word. Lord, it is the ultimate authority. And so may we surrender to your word today as we think about prayer something that has been interpreted and reinterpreted and changed by many people. Lord, I pray today we'd find comfort and stability and strength by looking to your word and your teaching. Uh, Help us to surrender to you, Lord. Rebuke us where we have sinned. We confess, Lord, may we confess more even in our hearts as your word convicts and encourage us, Lord. Strengthen us and equip this body, Lord, for the work of the ministry. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with everybody, and uh, I'm going to make one more announcement real quick. I wore my Safe Families for Children shirt last weekend as a reminder to say something, and I said nothing about it. And now this week where I'm not wearing it, I remember. It makes a lot of sense. So we, I want to make sure that you guys are aware of Safe Families for Children as a ministry. It's, a, it's something we've gotten involved with as a church, and we're nearly ready to launch as an official Safe Families Church. It is an amazing organization that ultimately is sort of that go-between. It's that step before children uh, end up in the foster system. It's, it's, it's intermediate uh, care for children. It's families that are actually helping those families care for children temporarily. There's all sorts of ways to get involved um, as a family friend, as a coach, as counselors, and as people who open up your home temporarily to children in the state of Maine. And there is an amazing need. We have several families already. If you're here and you're involved and getting involved with Safe Families, would you raise your hand so that people can see who you are? Just look around the room. There's some, we have Diana over here and John in the back, and we have the Barretts over here. And uh, my wife, Callie, is the ministry lead for that. She's not here today, unfortunately, with our our daughter being sick, but um, please pray about that. And on that back table below the marker board, there's all sorts of information. Just before you leave, grab some of those papers, look it over, pray about getting involved. It's an incredible need in our state, and we can help. And the church should be involved. Amen? The church should be involved. It's where we belong. So there's that. Let's dive into the word together. So just as a sort of a, a setup for what we're going to do today and how this is going to look, if you notice, the topic of prayer extends from last week where Jesus says, don't pray openly in a way to be seen and praised by others. Then this topic of today, which is the Lord's Prayer, which we're going get, to get to. Then he elaborates further on forgiveness with a pretty big bomb of a verse that everybody sort of really needs to think and consider. It's, it's really a, probably two or three sermons worth of, of things to consider in that. And then he talks about fasting, and we read all of that. We're not, there's no way we can thoroughly cover all of that today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the Lord's model for prayer today. Next week, we have sort of a guest speaker, although he's a member of this church, but I'm not going to tell you who he is. He's not an elder, as a hint. 
Uh, but we have somebody who's going to be preaching. Uh, he's going to preach on the next section with the laying up your treasures in heaven. Then the following week, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do a topical on forgiveness. Okay? So if you're wondering and you're wanting to hear about forgiveness, about forgiving others and being forgiven by God and this thing, we're going to go deeper into that the following week because there's just not enough time to tag it on to the end of today's sermon. It wouldn't be good for us. It wouldn't do it justice. I'm going to start with talking about fasting. You guys ready? I'm I'm making it sound like it's going to be some amazing thing. You guys ready for this? Fasting. If you look at the end of the section that Alessia read, Jesus brings it up in verse 16. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So I'm going to just, because this is so similar to giving and praying that we already addressed when it comes to the hypocritical life, we're going to just sort of skim this, and I think it will be thorough. But I encourage you to do a further study on fasting yourself. So fasting is a good thing. Some of you have fasted. Some of you are still yet to have uh, tried that discipline in your life as a Christian. Uh, As a non-Christian, I think the only reason you would fast is for diet, right? To just kind of help yourself out physically. But Christians are given this as a discipline. It's all through the scripture. God instructed Israel to fast on the day of atonement. You can look back and see that in Israel's history. They were told to fast. Fasting was done in times of national need and crisis and in times of seeking the Lord for repentance. These are times where you might consider fasting. God gives that instruction. In the context that we're looking at, in Christ's day, many of the Jewish leaders would actually fast twice a week, and we have some allusions to that in other teachings of Christ, which means what they would do, and here's what fasting is, is abstaining from all food for a full day. That's what they would do. And when they fasted for those two days, they would fast from all food from sundown to sundown the next day. So when the sun goes down, all the way till the sun goes down the following day was their period of fasting. So... The problem that Jesus is addressing here in verse 16 is not the fact that they are fasting. It's a good thing. The problem was in their boasting, similar to how they were praying and similar to how they were doing their giving was to be seen by others. So because fasting is a discipline of self-denial, which is what it is, those of you who have fasted before, you understand it is a discipline of self-denial. Because of that, it can be aggravating and unpleasant for the flesh. I see some like smiles and some nods, like you know what I'm talking about. You've done it, you've tried this, and it was a spiritual discipline for you. But that's the whole point. The whole point of it being unpleasant for the flesh and trying and a little bit aggravating, that's the point of it. See, Jesus addresses the hypocrisy of those who had decided to fast in private as a discipline, and yet they did not keep it about the Lord. It wasn't about him. And so when he says, don't disfigure your faces, what he is saying is that these men who were fasting privately would come out into the open with disfigured faces. Now, I don't know if you're picturing, but I don't know. I've seen some people fast in some pretty... Uh, selfish ways where you, you just, you just what do you, disfigure your face. You come out, you're like, 
<laughs> well, what's the matter? <laughs> I'm fasting. Well, well, why do you have to look like that? So that's, I mean, you disfigure your faces. And so you can kind of picture they would put on a show so that others would see and ask, so what's wrong? What are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very spiritual. And so I'm fasting. And so you can kind of see how this would be a hypocritical thing. They allowed their faces to look gloomy. Their countenance was such that people would see them and say something, giving them the opportunity to tell them that they are fasting. So we know that this is wrong, even just from the context of the last couple weeks. We should not do what we do in order to be seen by others. Similarly, Jesus says, truly, they have received their reward. When you fast, rather, don't do it to be seen by others. Do it as a means of drawing nearer to the Father. Do it as a personal means of you drawing near to the Father who sees you and who will reward you. Similar to giving, just to answer this potential question in your mind, this is not saying that if someone finds out that you're fasting or that if you mention it to somebody at all that you've lost the reward and the spiritual benefit of fasting. We understand that this is a matter of the heart The hypocrites, the Pharisees, the religious leaders were fasting and then purposefully going out, disfiguring their faces, looking gloomy so that they might be seen and praised by others. The question is, are you, if you tell someone about your fasting, are you telling others that you're fasting so that you can be seen as holy? Are you doing it for that reason? Or is there a reason to share truly, genuinely share in the discipline with someone. Maybe you've partnered with someone before and you said, let's fast together. You haven't lost your reward just because they know you're fasting. If your heart was not to be seen, but truly to share in that discipline and that suffering with another brother or sister. So we know corporate fasting was a thing. So it clearly is not if somebody else knows about it, you've lost your reward. It's an issue of the heart. If you fast, when you fast, make sure your heart is right before the Lord, and you're doing it with proper motivation. Ask the Lord for discernment. Seek to glorify Him. Just as an overarching principle, and then we'll go back and we'll address prayer. Let me put two verses on the, on the screen that you can see that really speak to all that we've talked about the last three weeks. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Everything you do. And then secondly, Galatians 1.10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And there's many other places that you can go to and look to see that if we are doing what we're doing, whatever it is, in a self-seeking, self-glorifying way, it is sin. And we need to repent of that. Let everything we do be as unto the Lord, not to be approved by man, but knowing that we have the approval of God, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should affect every action and every behavior. I think that's sufficient for now for fasting. If you guys have questions more about that, more practical things, we can certainly talk about that in other settings. For now, we're going to go back. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14, and I want to make sure that the most of our time is able to thoroughly look at this prayer that Jesus models for us. Look at verse 9. It says this. We'll read it once more. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So immediately what we can say about this and what I want you to hear is that this is a model for prayer. It's a model. You'll notice the phrase, Jesus says, pray then like this. He doesn't say, pray this very prayer necessarily. He also doesn't forbid that. But he certainly doesn't positively say, here's the prayer for you to pray for the rest of your life. He simply says, pray then like this. You can almost sense a curiosity from the disciples. Jesus, teach us to pray. What should prayer look like? How are we to do this? And of course, they would have seen Jesus praying and uh, Jesus would have been an excellent model for prayer, wouldn't you say? I would want to know how Jesus prays. His relationship with the Father was absolutely perfect. Clearly, we can see that Jesus was not intending this or these words to be exact or turned into a mantra for the church to pray. Now, I think we don't have to go very far to think that there are, to see that there are some religious uh, people that have turned this into that very same thing. In fact, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church gives this and even a certain number of times that someone who has sinned must pray this prayer in order to do, give their due penance. This combined with other prayers. And so it's interesting though, it's been turned into this exact thing in some cases that Jesus has clearly said, this is not to be prayed this way. We talked about that in our last time together. The context of Jesus offering this model for prayer is on the heels of telling the disciples how not to pray and how not to be like the hypocrites. Jesus does not rebuke sin without offering a better way. So he has said, don't pray like the hypocrites. And now out of his grace and mercy, he's saying, here's how you pray. Here's the better way. Don't pray like them. Let me tell you how to pray. Pray then like this. So the intention behind this is to provide us with what a God-glorifying prayer would include. So I would say tune into this if you have this question that you want your prayer life to be more robust, more godly, more biblical, then we have Christ himself teaching us. We cannot ask for anything better. Please remember that when we look at God's word and God's word is open, we are looking at the very words of God. The very voice of God is contained in the revelation of Scripture. Jesus Christ, the real man, the Son of God, has told us how to pray. Let's listen to him. We should see these as components of prayer, subject points, important pieces that a Christian can and should memorize. I think that you should. How many of you have this prayer memorized? Raise your hand. Most of you, like 90% maybe, have this memorized. If you haven't memorized it, memorize it. Not so that you can repeat it as a mantra, but so that you have an outline. It will help you pray. It will help you pray. A few helpful observations before we go line by line through this. Just notice that it's not a very long prayer overall. It's not very long. 
even if you were to expand these as an outline, different points, and you were to expand on each point, it really wouldn't be any longer than a few minutes to pray by yourself in a closet. Remember Jesus said, go into the closet and pray to your Father, and he hears you. He will hear you in secret, and he will reward you. If this was a model for prayer, and you had this, and you took it into your private place in your house, and between you and the Father, we're not talking about going and praying for three, four, five hours Jesus gives us a model of prayer that even himself giving it to us, it's, it's fairly concise. It's to the point. And so this really, another thing to mention this for is this should cancel out any excuses that someone might make about not having time to pray. Now you think about busy schedules, busy life, things that we have, and you say, well, how, how's your prayer life? I just can't find time to pray. Well, Jesus gave us like a really short model for prayer. There's no possible way that a prayer of this size could interrupt your day. In fact, I, you know, honestly, it should interrupt your day several times a day. It's, it's we who should be clearing our schedules, letting Christ be at the top of our schedule. So just to make that point, it's not a very long prayer. We can easily pray this prayer, make it a part of our life, make it a regular part of discipline as this model lays forth. So secondly, there's a logical flow. It's logical. It's logical. There's a flow to it. It's not confusing. It's not jumbled. There's a logical flow to the model that Jesus gives us. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an ending. That's kind of cool. Prayer is actually, according to Jesus, according to the model, orderly. There's order to it. There's thought for it. And it makes logical sense together. Now, here's something that you might have noticed as I was reading the text and as Alessia read it earlier. If you're in the ESV... There's really not much of an ending. You notice that? Anybody reading King James or New King James today? A few of you? Did you have a different ending in yours? You did have a different ending. How many of you memorized the ending that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen? Right, so where is it in the ESV? That's a good question. I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. If you, <laughs> so if you look at it in the King James Version or the New King James, you'll see the different ending. But also if you have the NASB, which we know our brother John, oh, we're going to miss him. He always preached from the NASB. In the NASB, it has it in brackets, which they're kind of saying it's here, but it's not here. We're not, like, it's here, but there's something about it. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. It's a great ending. So here's why. The earliest manuscripts did not have this ending. The earlier manuscripts didn't. And then the later manuscripts, they started to see this ending in the later manuscripts of this New Testament text. It was also found in several other extra-biblical literature. Just by the way, extra-biblical doesn't mean evil. Okay, just so you guys know. So if you're somebody's ever like, hey, what about the extra-biblical text? We shouldn't be like... Extra biblical. It just means not in the Bible, but other writings, right? There are other writings that were around in the New Testament, and there are several that are good. They're just not considered inspired, authoritative scripture as it, the way we see the Bible. So there's this writing called the Didache, which was in the first, it basically means the teaching. And this was a first century writing. Many of the teachings of Christ talked about baptism, explained it further, talked about communion, and it included the Lord's model for prayer. Again, in that writing, and that version contained also that line, another first century writing that included this prayer saying, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So some believe it was added later for the sake of public usage because it was a part of liturgy. People would pray it. It was, it was worshipful. So uh, having a nice ending as a public prayer made a lot of sense, and others aren't convinced that Jesus said it at all. 
So is it unbiblical? Not in the least. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever is very biblical. It is his forever. It is his glory. It is his kingdom. He owns it all. So whether it's in your Bible or not, or you choose to sort of use that as part of your outline for prayer, we'll leave that up to you. There are six petitions in this prayer. That's one thing we can notice. Six petitions. What is a petition? A petition is a formal request presented to someone. Jesus is teaching us that when we pray, we are to come to him, we can come to him with formal requests. God, this is what we ask of you. And there are six of them in this model for prayer. The first three are focused on God. They're more about him. The final three are... They're still Godward. They're directed to him, but they concern us. They concern the people of God. And the request that is made is for needs that we all have and experience in this life. And so Jesus gives us a very comprehensive model for prayer. So we're going to work one line at a time. And what I'm going to really ask each of you is to really think about this. Think about your heart being opened up before the Lord asking the Holy Spirit to teach you what you need to hear regarding your prayer life. Just say that between you and the Lord. Lord, teach me. Let my my mind be fixed on you and on your word. Help me to focus. God, what do you want to teach me today? It's been said, one way that you know that a work of art is a masterpiece is that you cannot exhaust it with observation. One way you know that a piece of art is a masterpiece is you cannot exhaust it just by looking at it. That is what this prayer, of, this model for prayer is. Thousands of years, right? At least a couple thousand. Being observed and looked at, it is, it's so rich. You cannot exhaust it. That's what we're looking at today. So I am guaranteeing there is something for us all to hear today. So we begin with the address. Prayer, according to Jesus, should have an address. Where is it going Who are you talking to when you pray? And so the first line is this, our Father in heaven. That's the address, our Father in heaven. And the direction of prayer matters. Who are you praying to? Prayer shouldn't be flippant. It shouldn't just be thrown out there to the universe. It matters who you pray to. Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father. I do believe that there's something to that. Praying to the Father, praying according to how Christ says to pray. I know a lot of us will begin an address in our prayers and we'll say, dear Jesus, right? How many of you like to say, dear Lord Jesus? It's okay, you're not wrong, (laughs) some of us, right? Or even begin with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here. These aren't wrong to pray, but I also think that we should think about what Jesus teaches us in his model to pray to the Father, The Father who even Christ himself prayed to. Jesus didn't pray to himself. He prayed to his Father. And so I think there's something to even following after that model. Begin there when you pray. I encourage you to begin there. Dear Lord, dear Father, Heavenly Father. There's all sorts, right? You've heard them all. Dear Lord God, God Almighty. They're all good. The point Jesus is making is that when we pray, we must have a direction for our prayer. And it makes sense that it goes at the beginning. If you're praying publicly, you can see how this would be a better witness. That when you pray, you address your prayer to who is the one who has authority in your life to even hear and answer your prayer. 
If you do have an opportunity to pray publicly or with a friend, address your prayer to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. People will hear. If you just pray, especially in an age like ours, you could be praying to anyone or anything, any entity or some universe somewhere in the distant. Address your prayer. Be clear about it. The point Jesus is making is that when we pray, we have direction, and it must be ultimately to the Father because it is from the Father from whom all blessings flow. The Father who is without change, the Father who is the Father of lights, He bestows gifts. Jesus taught us to pray to the Father who has provision to give. We are His children. Jesus has already taught us this. We are His children. We talk to Him as Father. You'll notice two other important things in the introduction to the prayer that Jesus wants us to think about. Think about these two things when we pray. First, there are prayers that we will pray alone, but this model is clearly for corporate prayer. Did you notice that? The very first word, our Father. Our Father. At least if you're not praying it corporately, you pray it with an understanding of the body of Christ that you are not alone and nor should you be alone in your walk with Jesus. You are not alone as a Christian. Christianity is not a lone religion. It's not something that you do by yourself. You can't handle it yourself. You need the body of Christ. And even in the, the model that Jesus gives us, he teaches us to pray with an awareness that we have brothers and sisters around us and we pray, our Father, our Father, We enter into conversation with God the Father, understanding that we're part of a family. I think New City Church does a fairly good good job at that, but would we not strive to do even better at that? That we would understand that we are a family and every component that that should include. What does it mean to be a family? To have one father we're submitted to, we love one another, there's unity. We strive for unity, we're eager for unity in the bond of peace. So we understand it is a corporate nature to it. Brothers and sisters, sharing our Father together who is in heaven is a blessing. Sharing that understanding that we have one Father. That being the final component of that beginning address that that though God is everywhere, he is not in every place the same way. Our Father who is in heaven. So in that address, we see that he is our Father. He is a Father, and we are his people, and he is the one who deserves our prayers. And then finally, a location is mentioned here. Our Father who is in heaven. Interesting, right? Even that that very statement that God is not in the same place He's not everywhere in the same way. He is everywhere, but he is in certain places in a distinct manner. The way that he is in heaven is different than the way we see him here. It just is. Why then would Jesus say, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven? God has a place in heaven that is not like here. His throne is in heaven. We see all sorts of allusions to this in scripture that we can see God is not in every place the same exact way. Let me just remind you that heaven is a place. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. Heaven is a place. We forget about it here because we're consumed with here. We're consumed with the physical. We're consumed with the the material. We're consumed with this realm. But there is another realm altogether. And there is a place called heaven and God dwells there uniquely. Let that lift your 
circumstance a little bit. Your mind above your circumstance just to remember that there is a place called heaven. A place of God's presence and glory. Heaven is where God's throne is. As Isaiah 66, 1 says, heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. That's unique. To think about heaven as his throne and earth as his footstool, we think of all sorts of things. God's glory fills the world, fills the universe. He is incredible, far beyond what we can imagine. And we begin our prayers thinking about the glory of God. The greatness of God, the bigness of God. He is in heaven. He is our Father. So we pray with transcendence and awe. The beginning of a prayer should be an awe, uh, an idea of, God, you are bigger than me and bigger than my circumstance. You can handle what I'm bringing to you right now. So we address God and we lift our prayers to the Father who is above it all. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He has established his throne in the heavens. Now there's all sorts of, we, we understand that now in science we've established different levels of heavens and there's, there's the atmosphere and there's all these different things that are going on. But there is a place where God dwells. I also just want to remind you that heaven is a destination for the believer in Christ. So we don't just pray this just as a distant thing, but this is a reality for every Christian who prays this prayer. You pray this prayer and you include this in your, in your outline, your idea of when you pray, and you are thinking immediately, one day I will be there. Heaven is a reality. It's a place. It's a destination. The presence of God in the middle of the glory of God, you will be there one day, dear brother or sister in Christ. It's a destination for you. We will go there one day. We will dwell with God in resurrected bodies. And so we look there by faith in prayer with a promise of seeing it one day. Right now we pray it by faith. We believe it by faith. One day we will see it with our very clear, unhindered, resurrected eyeballs. Isn't that kind of interesting? <laughs> we will see clearly. No more dim glass, no more shady mirror, perfectly clear. Our Father in heaven is who we pray to. He is in that perfect place of holiness and purity. He sees all and there's not a thing we can ask that is too difficult for him. But before we go thinking that he's just some sort of genie in a bottle waiting for us to ask him whatever we want, we come to the first of the three, or the three of those original petitions and it says this, hallowed be your name. So we go from this place of recognizing who God is, where he is, his fatherly nature, that he is in heaven. We recognize there is a heaven and he is our father. But then that very first phrase, hallowed be your name. This is essentially praying that the name of God be reverenced and kept holy. That's what that statement is saying. The petition is, God, may your name be kept holy and reverenced in every place of my life. It's a very sobering way to start your prayer. If without this, I think we would probably start with the things that we need. But Jesus taught us to pray first that God's name would be kept holy and reverenced. And that almost puts a check on our prayers, does it not? A check on what we bring to God and what we ask of God and how we even ask of it. That God's first and foremost priority is his glory. 
and that he is holy and that everything we do in all of our circumstances and all of our spheres of influence and everywhere we go and what we do, it would be kept holy. And we pray that for other people as well. Holy is your name. Hallowed be your name. Pray like this, brothers and sisters, and do so with genuine desire, and you will not be the same. Your prayers won't be the same. If this becomes the beginning of your prayers in some way that God's holiness and his reverence of his name would be your first priority, it will change how you pray. I believe it'll change even your life. It'll change how you see other people and other things, your circumstance, your perspective of life. If God's holiness is your desire, his reverence, the reverence of his name is your first desire, it will change you. This prayer, may your name be set apart in my life like nothing else. Your name, your holiness, who you are, may it be set apart as holy in my life like nothing else is. Nothing else deserves that place of honor and reverence like the name of our God. Holy is your name. If you haven't said that lately to the Lord, do so. Holy is your name, God. My name, thank you for my name, Lord. Thank you. But your name, oh, it's holy. It's perfect. When our prayers are led with this thought first, that God's holy name be reverenced in our lives and in our homes, with our words, with our actions, it will affect us. It's, it's the same word ultimately that gets translated to sanctified. When it says, hallowed be your name, it's the same word that gets translated in other places of the scripture to sanctified, which means to be set apart and consecrated. Like this, may your name be set apart in my life. So in a way, this is a prayer of petition and one other form of prayer, adoration. We should pray petition and adoration. I adore you, God, for your name is holy. What areas of your life should you pray this right now? Think about that. That God's name would be set apart as holy and that you would reverence his name in your life in every area. Where do you need to pray this and apply this and say to the Father, Father, may your name be reverenced here? Fill in the blank. Where do you need that? Where do you desperately need to pray that in your life? Your marriage, your home, your work, your complaining, your, your laziness. Maybe it's in your planning, like we prayed, how you plan things. Maybe it's just in your attitude. Maybe it's in how you deal with trials and suffering and heartache. Because instead of running to the Lord and desiring his holiness in your life, we just let our minds be filled with complaining. When we have a father who cares for us and his word is clear, our greatest desire would be that his name be set apart as holy. And this fits into this, the next two petitions really well. It's, again, it's a logical flow. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we go from this place, this height of God's holiness, his reverence, and where he is, that his name would be hallowed. And then we're not talking about his kingdom and earth. So what is God's kingdom? It should be asked. We should be able to know this. What is God's kingdom? I believe God's kingdom is the extent of his rule and reign. It's the extent. How far? What is the extent of where God rules and where God reigns? And so in one sense, he rules all and reigns everywhere. 
In one sense, he absolutely does because he is God and he is overall and he is sovereign. But in another sense, we long for his perfect reign on this earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus teaches us to pray with that mindset. We know that he rules and reigns all things, but may your rule and reign be more realized here right now on this earth, in my life, and in everybody's life around me. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist, you remember way back several weeks, John, his first time preaching on the scene, we see he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He begins to talk about the kingdom. And then Jesus again in chapter 4, verse 17, he preached the exact same words, repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand, it's near. We know that this is Christ's mission and it must be our mission, the coming of God's kingdom, the realization of his rule. So when we make this sort of petition, what we're doing is we're joining, we're joining in the mission of Christ. We're joining with Christ in his mission that his kingdom be established here on this earth. How does that happen? How does the kingdom of Christ come to be established here on this earth? One answer I'll give you. There's other ways to think about it, but here's one answer. By hearts becoming obedient to the king. Every heart that is obedient to the king is realizing the rule and reign of his kingdom. They are doing what is being done in heaven in the presence of God right now where there is perfect obedience. That is a tall order of prayer, wouldn't you say? Your kingdom come, rule and reign here. Let there be obedient hearts to the king. So we pray, your will be done. Let there be obedience to your will. The model image of God's will being perfectly done, Jesus tells us, is heaven, as it is in heaven. So we think about that place, and we know that place is where his will and his way is being perfectly kept. Is it that way here? Just do a quick little synopsis of your life, (laughs) circumstances, and the surrounding world and the community. Is God's will being done in that sense of his law, obedience to his will? We have a ways to go. But this is the way that Jesus has instructed us to pray. And I believe he's instructed us to pray in hope that this actually will be done because we know the future, we know what's coming, that his, ultimately his kingdom will come. He brings his kingdom here and establishes it here on this earth and one day we'll be a part of that. We're praying that incrementally. We're praying that through the seeds of the gospel, through our preaching of the gospel and the bringing of light to darkness, that that is happening over and over and over again in all spheres of our life. But we should begin to pray that now for our own life. Excuse me, our own life. Your will be done here. In God's very presence, think about this. There is no rebellion. Right now, there is no rebellion in God's presence, no disunity. There's no hatred, no slander, and there is no lying being done in the presence of God in heaven. None of these things are present there. There's no complaining, and there's no sin against God or other people at all. Can you imagine that for a moment with me? A place where right now as we speak, there is perfection. And all who are in the presence of God have been made perfect. Perfect unity, perfect fellowship, and the Father is right there. 
and they've seen Jesus. You guys desire this here in your life, in your own heart. What part of your heart is yet to obey? Is there a part of you that has sat and listened and you're part of hearing these messages each week and you're in the word maybe from time to time, but there's a part of you that is clearly not obeying the will of God? What part of you is yet to obey? What part of your marriage, your parenting, your friendships are needing to be brought into subjection and obedience to Christ? When you get to heaven, will you be surprised by how completely his will is being done there? Are you going to be completely shocked? Like, I had no idea this is how we were supposed to live. Or are you striving for that right now? I think we should strive for it now. Jesus tells us to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And what what it means to pray your will be done, it means, Lord, whatever you want to do with me, do it. I'm getting out of the way. Your will be done. Whatever you want. Can you say that to the Lord? Can you ask that? Lord, whatever you want to do in me. And I will just say this. First and foremost, it's usually not a task. It's usually a heart issue. First and foremost, it's not some big ministry. It's usually a heart issue. God, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do in my heart? Where do I need to surrender? Because what does God want? Worship. What does he deserve? Worship. He will get the work of his kingdom done through submissive, obedient children. He will use us. He will exalt the humble So what do we need? We need a work of God to humble our hearts. So take that to the Lord and pray that prayer. There's a famous hymn and a verse in this hymn that goes like this. You probably will recognize it. Take my will, make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It's a matter of the heart. Pray that. Let your will Become my will, Lord. Let my will surrender to your will. So with this model so far, we come to him first in adoration, seeking the Father and seeing him rightly as holy, bowing our hearts in surrender and desiring his name to be honored above all things. And all of this before Jesus ever mentions a supply that we need on this earth. But of course, Jesus knows that we also have needs. He knows that we have needs. And so, we pray for daily provision. One commentator mentioned how this prayer goes from the heights of heaven all the way down to a grain of wheat for bread. Isn't that interesting? It begins way up here, And before we ever get to the small things that we need, our eyes are lifted up to the Father. And then it comes down to just a small grain of wheat for bread. The Father sees all of it. He sees the big things, and he sees the small things. He sees what you need. He knows. So here's what he says. I love this line, don't you? Give us this day our daily bread. Every time I talk about bread, I get hungry. I don't like these sermons <laughs> for that reason alone. 
But that hunger, when we think about bread, that relatability, I know I've said this before and you probably read it. It's not original to me, but I think this way. Bread is common to all people. Kings eat it and peasants eat it. It covers the world. The fact that this was chosen as God's way of telling us he sees our needs and he will supply our daily need, he uses the word bread. He knows what you need. Doesn't matter who you are, what kind of circumstance, how rich or how poor you are, he sees your need. The bread that we ask for is not out of selfishness. Even in this request, we see the word us. See, it's still there. It doesn't say, pray like this, give me my bread today, Lord. It's specifically give us. It's still in that category of teaching us to think about the needs of other people around us while we pray for our own need. And recognize that God supplies the need of all his people in his timing and his way. Give us this day what we need for today. So we pray for our needs and we remember to petition the Lord for others. Let that be part of your prayer. When you pray for a personal need, whether it be food or some financial thing or direction, pray for someone else as well. Let it be a reminder. Jesus says, give us this day. So as you are praying for your physical needs, remember to pray. And a good place to start is with the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters, whom God has connected you with in the local church. You may have bread for today while someone else does not have bread. That's a reality. You may be eating bread or have a provision that somebody else does not. This prayer is not a guarantee of all the physical needs that you ask for. This doesn't say that as soon as you ask for bread, you get bread. It is a prayer of humility and submission, not recognizing where provision comes from. Your need is going to be fulfilled by God the Father who sees you, so pray his will be done, his kingdom come, and for the bread that you need to come from him in his timing. It's a reminder that in prayer, we seek the giver and the maker of all. Give us this day. Who are we talking to? The Father. It is the Father who has the ability to give. Not seeking tomorrow's need before it's time. That's certainly inserted here. Daily bread for this day. But content to ask for the provision that you need right now. Bread is not extravagant. That's another point. It's not extravagant. It's basic which should help us to pray humbly, not for extravagant wealth. Jesus says, pray for bread. So when we pray, you might have an amazing, extravagant need, but at least it's gonna keep your heart in check from desiring vain things. So pray for humble things. Be humble in your prayer. God may want to make you wealthy, but he'll only do it if you can actually handle it and you'll use it for his glory. Think about this. We so often think only in terms of what we lack and what what would make us more comfortable or more happy. That's generally how we think. Some kind of provision that we need, forgetting that if we do not walk in the grace of salvation and the the forgiveness that we've been given, then we are ultimately starving ourselves 
anyway. Here's where he goes from bread. Notice it's in the same sentence. There's just a comma. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. In the same breath. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Matthew Henry puts it like this. Our daily bread does but feed us as lambs for the slaughter if our sins be not pardoned. If we would dare pray for bread, yet we rebel against God the Father, you are starving. The most important need is not our physical bread. It's the bread from heaven. It's Jesus Christ. So when we pray out of that, our mouths, prayer for God's physical provision or some tangible need that we have, it is right that in that very same breath, we thank God for the forgiveness that he has given us through Jesus. And we remember that it is by his grace. And we don't misorder or misprioritize these things. This is the prayer of a Christian, not a religious man or woman earning favor from God. There is no meritorious advantage to praying for your forgiveness or the forgiveness of others. When Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Jesus is not saying that if you forgive others, that is the merit for your forgiveness from God. We are all of this time, based on God's full counsel, we are seeing this through the lens of his grace. Forgiveness from God is based on his grace, and it is through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just to backtrack for a moment, because I don't want to move on too quick. When you pray for your daily provision, I'm challenging you and all of us to then pray in that moment for the greater spiritual need in your heart and an opportunity to thank and praise God even more so for the forgiveness that he has shown you of your many debts against him. When this prayer is understood or when we understand the teaching from this prayer, what we're called to believe through prayer is that grace is the grace that has been extended to us, that frees us of our great sin debt against God, and it is a grace that should be presently flowing through us to other people. If God has shown you grace to forgive you, there will be a present and continual sign of that grace pouring out on other people to forgive them also. And this is ultimately a, one of the most beautiful fruits that is evident in the redeemed person. You've seen it, and maybe you've even experienced it, that when you have been forgiven of much, God gives you the strength and the ability to forgive others' debts that they owe you. It is only by God's grace that that happens. A forgiving heart that does not hold a grudge any longer There's no grudges. Grudges are not, they have no place in a Christian's heart according to Jesus' model for prayer. There's no harboring of bitterness. Maybe it's for a moment, but you're seeking for the way out. There's no accusation continually against those who have done wrong to you. But the person who is redeemed is free in forgiveness, free to forgive because of the debt you have been freed from. If you struggle with this, 
you have a key right here in this prayer. Think longer on the debt that you owed to God that was washed clean and forgotten. Think longer on that. Are you having a hard time forgiving somebody of some great wrong that they've done you? You have not thought long enough. You're dwelling on other things. You're trying to do it in your strength. Think longer on the debt you owed until you are there before God in praise to him, worshiping him for his forgiveness, praising him, thanking him, because your sin debt against God was far greater, far more serious, far more detrimental, far more offensive to a holy God than what anyone can do to you or I. It does not feel that way, and I don't want to minimize what that sin feels like, but this is the instruction we're told to go and remember our forgiveness. Finally, we can't just stay there. We have to continue on with life. We continue on with life in holiness and victory, and so we understand that each of us, as we continue life, there will be temptation. There's going to be struggle against sin, and so we have this final word. After the forgiveness of our debts and the forgiveness of Others, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This final petition. As soon as we end our thinking on and meditating on the forgiveness of God, what generally happens? You come down from that place or you're in that place of worshiping God and you see him clearly and you're, and you're just enthralled with his goodness. What generally is around the corner from a place of high victory? Another temptation. Isn't this fitting and logical to come to this place and then immediately pray, lead me not into temptation, Lord. Deliver me from evil. The enemy of our soul is right around the corner from a moment of great victory and he has already thought up ways to lay out the tripwire to tempt you and to cause you to fall. Notice the, two, the way that this prayer is laid out. There's a negative and a positive. Lead us not is the negative, but deliver us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We should all be praying against temptations. All of us. It should be a regular part of our prayer. Lead me not into temptation, Lord. Because a biblical understanding of temptation knows the one who is behind our temptation. And we know how relentless the enemy is. We know how relentless Satan is and all of his demons. We know how clever and crafty each one is. We know how they would seek to tempt us. So knowing the one who is behind our temptations and that his desire is to destroy us through our temptations. We should pray against it. And with that breath, we're praying against temptations, but we're also praying for deliverance from the evil that Satan would unleash in our path. Guys, I hope you're aware of the seriousness of this and how regular this is part of your life. There are temptations for all of you, and you each know what tempts you the most. Sometimes it's a great outward sin that has a lot of effect on other people. Sometimes it's just inward. It's a lot of thoughts. It's a tendency. And you know that the enemy knows where you fall and fail, and he's going to do what he can to manipulate situations 
and put temptation in your path. So all the more so reason we should be praying against temptation. But then we pray for deliverance and praise God that he gives all a way out. Every, for every temptation in the believer's life, we are given a promise that there is a way out and it's provided by Christ. So just hold on to these words, these last words that I'm gonna share with you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. Think about the temptation that you might be failing in and falling to weekly. Maybe you've been caught up in it. Maybe you've been failing in it. And you're allowing yourself not to just be tempted, but to succumb to the temptation and your life is being wrecked little by little. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, Sarah says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you, that you may be able to endure it. Notice that this is not simply about life's trials, but it's about specific temptations. We know that God is glorified in our faith. We know that sometimes God allows trials, and sometimes God even brings trials, circumstances that will test us and try us. And he's glorified when in those moments we put our faith in him and we trust him. In the moment of temptation, though, we have the way of escape, and the way of escape is provided through Jesus Christ. The way of escape is provided through the truth. We are all given this assurance, this promise. So I just encourage you to hold on to this. There is every way out of the temptation that you often succumb to, and it is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the revealed word of God. God is faithful. Notice that's what it says. God is the faithful one. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, meaning he will give you the strength even at the end of your rope, the end of your ability, he will supply you your need and he'll give you the way out. And Jesus is telling us in his model for prayer that we pray against temptation, we ask him for deliverance from evil to come, and we do all that in the context of his will being done, his kingdom come, our obedience being first and foremost. This is a comprehensive prayer, is it not, brothers and sisters? This is something that you can all understand and see and believe and apply. Think about all these in terms of your prayer life now. When you leave today and you go, Ask the Lord to help you to apply these principles, these things, this model into your prayer life that your prayer life would become even more and more rich. If you are caught up in temptation, as I close in prayer, I'm gonna pray specifically for you. For those who are in this body, who are part of this church that are, you're under fire right now. There is a way out. The way out is through faith in Jesus Christ. The way out is through regular, steady, even small steps of obedience toward God. Long obedience. It's not gonna happen overnight. Long obedience in that one direction, pointing to Jesus, looking to Christ.
Would you guys pray with me? And if, if you're currently not right now in a place of dealing with strong, heavy trials and temptation, would you join me in praying specifically for anyone in this body who is dealing with that right now? Father, we come before you and we are just grateful to, the, to your word, highlighting in us our need. We confess, God, that we often pray far too selfishly. We often don't even think about adoring you. We tend to just adore ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Father, we thank you that you are glorious in the heavens and you are all-seeing and all-knowing and all-powerful. Your name is holy, so may your name be hallowed and reverenced in this church always and in our families, in lives, individual lives. And we are desperate for your will to be done. We see the future kingdom and we long for it. We, want, we long for the day where we will be in perfect peace and harmony and everlasting union with Christ in your presence in resurrected bodies. Until we are there, Lord, put this prayer on our lips in each of us that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives. The areas of our life where we are seeking our will, God, rebuke us in these areas. Give us a clear view of your will through your word. Help us to repent of selfishness, self-seeking. Thank you, God, for the bread that you have provided for all of us. Thank you for daily provision. Protect us, God, for looking too far into the future, for planning as the world plans, but to plan humbly, seeking your provision above all things, Lord, to pray humble prayers, prayers of faith. We, we recognize that our bread and all of our needs come from you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ and that by his stripes, our wounds, though deep wounds of sin have been healed through the power of Christ's forgiveness and resurrection. Thank you for atoning for our sins through your blood. How could we hold grudges against anyone? Lord, help us to forgive today. And Lord, for the person who is under temptation, under trial, regularly and often, the one that I'm praying for, that we're praying for, are those who are failing in sin, who are harboring sin, who are nurturing their sin, are not praying against temptation, but in fact, are being lazy about praying against temptation. I pray, God, that you would give each one, each of your people who is in this place, a zeal for the will of God and for obedience to God, that your holiness would be the motivation, that we want to please you, Lord, that we desire to please our Father who has freely given his Son to us for our salvation. How will you not also give us all things, Scripture says. Thank you, Lord. For giving the way out, I pray that you would give this person, these people, the way of escape today. To flee temptation, to flee idolatry, to flee sexual immorality, and to cling to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness that freely flows to all who repent and believe. So we pray this as a church body. We pray that you would give strength to the weak, to the discouraged to the feeble-hearted that your will would be accomplished, Lord. Strengthen your body now.
we pray in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church Podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.